0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have... Four new movies to review for you. Three of them are brand new, and they happen to be brand new in theaters. And the other one came out last weekend, but I didn't review it last week because I was doing my special Oscar and Razzie revelation and review show, which I tend to do. I actually do that show twice a year, once when the nominations are... Announced And then again, right before the respective ceremonies, but I will do my second show in a number of weeks. It's probably going to be taped on March 11th, 2023. And that's usually the day that I release it to the public on my podcast. So in any event, let's get to the new reviews. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is one that is brand new in theaters, and the movie is called Knock at the Cabin. It is the latest from writer and director M. Night Shyamalan, who actually based this uh, movie, unlike his other previous movies, on a novel that was called The Cabin at the End of the World, and that was written by Paul G. Tremblay. And one problem I have with the movie Knock at the Cabin is the title, because the book upon which it's based the cabin at the end of the world is a great title. And if that title isn't broke, why fix it? But in any event, knock at the cabin doesn't really make a lot of sense because what wouldn't it be knock at the cabin door, for example, who knocks at a cabin? Maybe knock on the cabin door? I don't know. But that's not the fault of M. Night Shyamalan. That's probably the fault of the studio executive, because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are usually in charge of naming a movie. And a lot of times, they get it wrong, the name of the film, and I think this is one of those cases. But the name of the movie, I'm not going to hold against the actual movie itself. It's not a perfect film, but... It's probably one of M. Night Shyamalan's better films, but it still has some problems. So the movie is about uh, a young girl who is adopted by two male parents, uh, gay parents, and they are vacationing at a remote cabin in the woods. And they find themselves taken hostage by armed strangers who demand that the family make a choice to avert the apocalypse. So this gang that invades their home is not after money and they're not after any sort of, um, vengeance, but they do have a mission and it is an unusual one. The leader of this gang is Leonard and he's played by Dave Bautista and Dave Bautista very much like Dwayne Johnson and John Cena has not only experienced a lot of, um, a lot of success in movies, but he also got started playing tough guys and he could play tough guys for the remainder of his career, but he has actually gotten a lot more diversified roles as of recently. And I don't mean diversified in terms of race, but I do mean diversified in terms of playing other roles besides being a tough guy. And I've seen Dave Bautista in a lot of comedies like Stuber, for instance, that's an underrated one. And he's usually played the straight man. And that's kind of easy to see here. He still plays it straight, but he plays somebody a lot deeper than some of the other characters he's played. So Dave Bautista is undoubtedly the best actor in this movie. And he also is, this is probably the best role that he's played in his career and Hopefully, it's not the last best role that he plays. Hopefully, he goes up from here. But in any event, he has some premonition that the family whose vacation home he invades is linked to the end of the world. And that's why he and three other people, a former nurse named Sabrina, who's played by Nikki Amuka Bird... And other companions named Redman, played by Rupert Grint, best known for playing Ron Weasley in the Harry Potter films. And also a sympathetic young woman by the name of Adrian, who's played by Abby Quinn, invade the home of Eric and Andrew, who are played by Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge, respectively. Their young daughter, who's adopted, uh, from presumably from South Korea, is a young girl by the name of Wen, who's played by Kristen Q. And they are the primary actors in this film. There are some other actors who come and go either on TV screens or in flashbacks, but it's primarily these seven. And the movie does delve into some very dark and very bizarre subject matter, but it's not horrifying. Still, the movie is rated R, which is unusual, but not the first time for writer and director M. Night Shyamalan. And also, M. Night Shyamalan collaborated on the screenplay from an initial draft uh, written by Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman. So it is a bit unusual for M. Night Shyamalan to collaborate, or yeah, both A, collaborate on his screenplays, and B, base his movies on previous source material, especially if it's a book, because a lot of times M. Night Shyamalan has based his movies on original concepts. So you can either love M. Night Shyamalan's movies or hate them, but the thing is, he does have his his own unique spin. And there are some weaknesses to Knock at the Cabin. I did mention the title. I don't really like the title, but that's not M. Night Shyamalan's fault. Sometimes the dialogue is a bit weird, which is typical in M. Night Shyamalan films. In in his worst, he usually has really bad actors perform bad dialogue. One such example of that is The Happening, which actually doesn't have bad actors in it. It has Mark Wahlberg, Zoe Deschanel, and John Leguizamo, but they didn't act particularly well in that film, and I don't think that's to be particularly disputed. But here in Knock in the Cabin, you have people who are really good actors. I th- I think just about everyone, or the, the seven principal actors, act very well in this film, but sometimes the dialogue is a little odd. The other thing I didn't like about Knock at the Cabin is some of the cinematography, especially when there were a number of very unnecessary close-ups. For instance, there there are moments of dialogue where It's so close to the face, you would imagine that the cameraman would be within inches or have his lens within inches of the actor's face. It's very distracting. It feels a bit claustrophobic, and you really want to know what's happening around them in addition to the dialogue that they're having. I didn't think it was necessary for that reason to have the close-ups be so prominent. There are also some unnecessary flashbacks. For example, there's a scene where the gay couple is adopting the young girl Wen from her her orphanage in presumably South Korea, maybe North Korea too. I didn't think that was necessary for the story. There was also a scene where Eric and Andrew, the gay couple, are in a bar and they get attacked, presumably for homophobic reasons. Again, that didn't really tie into the longer narrative of the story, but I would say that Knock at the Cabin is a big improvement from some of Night Shyamalan's worst films, especially The Happening and his most recent film, Old. And I, I did say before that the acting in this film is a lot better than it was in the aforementioned bad films that M. Night Shyamalan has directed. So for that reason, I give Knock at the Cabin my rating of a checkout. I do think it is among M. Night Shyamalan's best, but because of the questionable choices with the flashbacks and the cinematography, it prevents me from calling this one of M. Night Shyamalan's best of the best, but still it is a dramatic improvement from M. Night Shyamalan's worst. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is 84 Brady. This is a film that will undoubtedly polarize audiences. If you don't like Tom Brady, and if you absolutely hate the New England Patriots, chances are you will not enjoy this film. I, on the other hand... Maybe I don't love Tom Brady. I think a lot of the decisions he's made over the last three or four years has been have been particularly questionable. But I am a huge New England Patriots fan. I have been for life. I was even a fan of them back in the 90s when they decidedly sucked. And to see this film was, for me, catharsis. But it is a group of friends who are over the age of 70, not exactly 80 for Brady. There's one member of the group who's over 70, but they are a group of female friends who make it their lifelong mission to go to the Super Bowl and meet NFL superstar Tom Brady. And this is in 2017 during Super Bowl 51 when the New England Patriots took on the Atlanta Falcons. Now I do caution you, if you are a fan of the Atlanta Falcons and you were profoundly disappointed by the end of that game, you will not want to see this film. I don't know if you necessarily were encouraged to see the film, but chances are you will probably hate it. But the four fans in this movie are uh, actually, uh, I don't know if they're New England Patriots fans in real life. Uh, Somehow I doubt it, but in this film they are. They consist of a novelist whose name is Trish, who's played by Jane Fonda. Um, an older woman who is experiencing some health problems named Lou, who's played by Lily Tomlin, an MIT professor by the name of Betty, who's played by Sally Field and a retiree by the name of Mora, who's played by Rita Moreno. They're all good friends. They have presumably been since they were younger and they are all huge New England Patriots fans and they are all part of a group that is called 80 for Brady. And this movie actually is based on a true story Um, because the one of the producers of the film um, not only grew up in Massachusetts, but he has a grandmother who is part of an organization that is still around today, sort of a unofficial social club that is called 80 for Brady. And he based this movie on that group. Now, rest assured, this group of elderly women who are over 80 do not have the (laughs) genetics that the four women in this movie do, especially Jane Fonda and Rita Moreno. But, you know, as a fun movie for football fans, this movie definitely satisfies, and again, I will say that I am biased. I am a huge New England Patriots fan. So seeing this film and seeing these ladies be huge fans of uh, the New England Patriots was for me a lot of fun. And as I was watching the film, there were some certain tropes. Like for instance, there's one friend who may or may not be experiencing a terminal illness and wants to have one last good time with her lady friends. And there's also another one who's stuck in her retirement home. There's another one who is experiencing some marital problems. And then there's a fourth one who's also experiencing uh, some new love after her previous marriage, which presumably ended after her husband died. So there are those common tropes that come with these kinds of uh, comedies, a little bit of romanticism in them. And a lot of um, the, the the tropes in this film definitely reminded me of the later Nancy Myers film, but it's still a lot of fun. And there certainly were moments of this film that I didn't expect. For instance, Tom Brady himself, whether you love him or hate him, did actually have a prominent role in In this film, and not only does he cameo as himself, but he also serves as kind of a metaphysical driving force for these four ladies trying to get into Super Bowl 51. But they also have a lot of help along the way, resulting in some very neat cameos, and not just from NFL players like Tom Brady... Rob Gronkowski or Julian Edelman or Danny Amendola, all of whom actually make appearances in this film as themselves. And actually to give away some of the cameos and also tell you how these four women actually get into the game is actually going to spoil the fun of it. There are also some very hokey and unrealistic moments. Like for instance, there's one scene where the four women actually get into the same booth as the coaches or the assistant coaches who are calling the plays from the booth. I I figure that would probably never happen in real life, but the way it kind of turns out in the grand context of this film is a lot of fun to watch. It's, it's very funny and it's very poignant, but again, I am speaking as a New England Patriots fan, which is why I give 80 for Brady, my particular rating of a knockout and fully excited admitting and exposing my bias for the New England Patriots. is a very hard thing to say, particularly when you're hosting a radio show and recording it from Nashville, Tennessee. When I'm out and about in Nashville, I have no problem wearing my Boston Red Sox or Boston Celtics gear, particularly because Nashville doesn't have a baseball team, at least not a, a Major League Baseball team. And the closest NFL team is in Memphis, not Nashville. But when it comes to my Patriots and my Bruins gear, I keep it in the closet most of the time because I do not want to get attacked by Titans or Predators fans. (laughs) I really don't. But getting back to the movie, I did think it was a lot of fun. Certainly it had had some fantastical elements to it that weren't particularly realistic, but... If you're a New England Patriots fan, or if you like any of the actresses that are the main stars of the film, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Sally Fielder, Rita Moreno, you will enjoy this film. It's certainly a movie that I think football fans will love. I, I think it might be good for a girls night in as well, provided primarily that you're not an Atlanta Falcons fan, because in that case, you'll experience a lot of pain during the climax of the film. Rest assured. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Amazing Maurice. And The Amazing Maurice is an animated film that is based directly on the children's novel, The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, which British writer Terry Pratchett wrote in 2001. And it is actually believe it or not the 28th novel in the Discworld series wh- for which Terry Pratchett is well known and it is the first novel that he wrote in the Discworld series that is written for children and the Discworld series is Terry Pratchett's uh, continuing series of novels uh, he's written 40 he had written 41 total novels before his death in 2014 uh, 2015, God Rest His Soul. I've actually only read one of his books, and that is the first Discworld novel, The Color of Magic. And there has been a lot of talk about adapting Terry Pratchett's Discworld series into a film, but it has been stalled pretty much ever since Terry Pratchett wrote the first Discworld novel, The Color of Magic, in 1983. Disney was at one point interested in adapting the Discworld series, and ultimately that fell through, but there's still hope, just obviously not during Terry Pratchett's lifetime because that's over. But The Amazing Maurice, even though the book takes place in the Discworld literary universe, The Amazing Amazing Maurice makes no mention of Discworld, and that's fine. Actually, standing on its own as a fable without the science fiction elements of Discworld, it actually works very well. So the story follows Maurice, who is a goofy streetwise cat who can talk, and unlike Garfield, Maurice can talk and other humans can actually hear them. And Maurice is not only a smart cat in the sense that he can speak very articulately, he's also a con artist, and he has in this story a money-making scam which he tries to which he tries to enact by finding a dumb-looking kid who plays a pipe and his very own horde of articulate rats who are strangely literate. Unfortunately, the comic plans fall, fall through, particularly when he and his human companion meet a very book smart girl and somewhat street smart girl named Malicia who's voiced by Amelia Clark. Maurice by the way is voiced by Hugh Laurie, best known for by to American audiences for his role in House and also to British audiences for his co-starring in the long-running BBC series Jeeves and Wooster, um, which is one of many TV shows in which Hugh Laurie acted, but here he actually does a great job playing the voice of Maurice. He's very clever and cunning and his human companion, Keith, who plays the flute or the accordion, I should say, is, is voiced by Himesh Patel, who is best known to American audiences for being in the, fanta- uh, the fantasy comedy yesterday, where he plays somebody who got into an accident and finds that he wakes up in a world where the Beatles don't exist and he is one of the only people who remembers the Beatles. That was a really good movie and Himesh Patel was excellent in it. And in this film, the the cat Maurice, the human Keith, and the many other rats who are accompanying them on this scheme to get more money find themselves tied up in a conspiracy where there are these other nefarious individuals in this small town who are being hoodwinked by these three other con artists who are taking the food away from people in the town. So they find themselves rather than fending for themselves, actually trying to save the town from this perceived famine. And the movie takes a lot of very interesting directions with this story, and it's a very cunning and clever story that also has its share of laughs. Actually, one of the funniest parts of this movie that I found happens after the climax. I'm going to tell you that one of the characters dies, but after they die, they experience some sort of paranormal entity. And while a paranormal entity is not usually very funny, the paranormal entity in this film is actually very good. There was one hangup I had with it, and it was with the character of Malicia. Now, Amelia Clark is a fine actress, and she does very well with what she's given here. What I didn't like was the framing device involving her, and also her breaking the fourth wall and speaking to the audience about the certain cliches of various stories. And there there are parts in the movie where she says, you know, this is the part where the hero does this and the comic relief does that and you can't be either, you're not brave enough to be the hero and you're not funny enough to be the comic relief and so on and so forth. I think that goes on for a little too long and I really don't like it as a moviegoer or as... Somebody who appreciates stories very much, where there's a character who tells you, you know, this is the part where A, B, and C happens in the story. It's like, don't tell me that. Just tell me the story. Yeah, I know there are cl- there are tropes and there are cliches in films. Do something original with them and then I'll appreciate it. But pointing out the tropes and the inconsistencies of stories doesn't make the story better, and it doesn't make you more clever. Just tell the story, and then I'll grade that story in the end, being the critic that I am. Other than that, though, I really liked The Amazing Maurice. I thought the animation was fantastic, especially the minute detail to animation, particularly on the fur of the cats and the rats. But also, in addition to that, they have a lot of very creative characters who are voiced very well by just about every single character or every single actor who provides the voices for the characters. And there are a lot of well-known ones to American and British audiences. I won't go into each and every voice actor because there are a lot of characters, but I did mention to you the, the principal actors. And even though I did have a problem with some of the forced exposition, as well as the side commentary about how militia thinks that I think the story's going to go. I did really enjoy The Amazing Maurice. It's a great film to come out very early in the year, and it gets my rating of a knockout. And one of the things I also appreciate about this film, especially it being released in the United States, was that the original British actors are voicing their own characters. The reason I say that is because there are times where, sometimes to make a quick buck, Movie studios in America re-release films in Europe, uh, even in uh, the, the United Kingdom, and have American voice actors dub over the original voice actors. Sometimes that works with films that come out of Japan or other non-English speaking countries, but I really find it unnecessary when it comes to British films. After all, British people speak English and I do think it is a cheap way to get adults a bit more or a bit less reluctant to take this, to take their kids to see this film. But I think ever since Paddington movie studios have been open more to British actors Providing their original voices just like they did in the original British cut. Hopefully, it stays that way. <laughs> Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is You People. This is a romantic comedy that was released on Netflix originally on January 27th, 2023. I'm a little bit late to the party to review this movie for you, but better now than later, as is frequently with new movies. But You People was a movie that I was and I wasn't looking forward to. The reason I was looking forward to it was because it was directed by Kenya Barris, who is the creative mind behind such hit TV shows as Blackish and Grownish. And he also created the show Mixedish, which I think if it hadn't been for the pandemic, that show would still be on today because that sh- show was really good too, but it only lasted two seasons. Blackish has concluded its run, but Grownish is still going strong, albeit with different characters from the Blackish universe. But Kenya Barris created a very funny and very smart show with Blackish, which was undoubtedly the best in his Blackish universe. He also created another show for Netflix, which didn't last long. It was called Hashtag Black AF. And I won't tell you what AF Stands for because this is a PG rated show. So I don't give you any expletives, but in any event, that show was okay, and Kenya Barris ended up being a decent actor in it. It just wasn't quite up to the caliber of Blackish, which is probably why Netflix canceled it. But here he has an opportunity to do something in the movie business. He, this isn't the first movie on which he has worked, but it is the first movie that he has directed. He wrote the screenplay to You People along with Jonah Hill, who does star in the movie. So You People is about uh, a young man by the name of Ezra Cohen, played by Jonah Hill, who is 35 years old. He is a broker and he's also a podcaster. And he falls into an unlikely relationship with fashion designer Amira Muhammad, who is played by a lovely young actress named Lauren London. Now, why is their relationship um, unlikely? Largely because Amira is black and Ezra is white, but there are some other differences as well. And eventually, the two begin dating, and one of the things that I thought would be the weakness with, with this movie is that I wasn't sure about... The romantic chemistry that Jonah Hill would have with Lauren London, because there are few films in which Jonah Hill has had a romantic relationship on screen. The only one I can think of is 22 Jump Street, where he had a romantic relationship in that film with another lovely actress named Amber Stevens West. And their chemistry in that film was good. I'm not sure if Jonah Hill could do it again, but to both of their credits, they made me believe that they could be a good couple. But as these movies go, once they introduce each other to their parents, that's when the cracks in the relationship begin to show. Not just on a racial level, but also on a religious level, and also on that trope of the potential son-in-law trying to establish a better relationship with his potential father-in-law. In this case, the parents of Ezra are Shelley and Arnold who are played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus and David Duchovny respectively. The parents of Amira are Akbar and Fatima who are played by Eddie Murphy and Nia Long respectively. And immediately as soon as as Amira's parents particularly Eddie Murphy's character introduced, you know that it's going to be a slippery slope in the relationship between Amir and Ezra, particularly because Eddie Murphy's character, Akbar, is a black Muslim. In other words, he is a member of the Nation of Islam in probably one of the most unnecessary and questionable developments in the story. For example, the Nation of Islam is not like other Muslims in America or in the world. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center and other groups, the Nation of Islam is a black supremacist organization. And they're run by Louis Farrakhan, who is a bit of a nut job. He is not only racist against white people, he is also a conspiracy theorist, and he is also... Very, very anti-Semitic. So it is unlikely that Eddie Murphy's character, who holds Louis Farrakhan in such high regard that he wears a hat that he calls a crown, that he claims Louis Farrakhan gave to him personally. It seems unlikely to me that somebody who holds Louis Farrakhan in such high regard would even tolerate, let alone allow, his daughter to marry a Jewish man, uh, and a Jewish white man at that. But that point is brought up and there's, there are some other points where Ezra is trying to get in with Akbar and he does so to the point of lying. For instance, there's one scene where he actually says, Jonah Hill's character says, oh, I love Louis Farrakhan. And Akbar says, oh, really? Tell me one thing you love about him which is a very good question. And Jonah Hill's character is supposed to be smart. He's a broker and you don't get a job as a broker by being stupid, and he also hosts a what you're believed to what what you're supposed to believe is a smart podcast. So why would somebody who's Jewish, who presumably has a college education, say that he loves Louis Farrakhan? you you're just setting yourself up for failure and not just to impress your potential father-in-law. You're you're setting yourself up probably to make yourself sound stupid. And there are other scenes here like for instance where Ezra says that he, you know, plays basketball regularly at Langston Hughes Park and he just makes up the name Langston Hughes Park because Akbar Eddie Murphy's character does a Google search and finds that in the greater Los Angeles area, where this movie takes place, there's no such park as Langston Hughes Park. But you're never told how Ezra came up with the name Langston Hughes Park, why he decided to name, you know, make up a name of a park in Los Angeles, and also you learn that he doesn't know anything about Langston Hughes. So in that case, why did he choose the name Langston Hughes if he didn't even know anything about him? And there's one part where uh, Eddie Murphy's character, Akbar, actually says to Jonah Hill, life for me ain't been no crystal stare, which is a very famous line from one of Langston Hughes' poems. And the character Esra, Jonah Hill's character, clearly did not get the reference. So why did he lie about it? Did he lie to impress only uh, Akbar? It's, it's never really explained. And there are also some cringeworthy scenes, which almost which are so cringeworthy they might as well be from Get Out. But this is supposed to be a comedy, where Shelley Julia Louis Dreyfus's character is trying to uh, bond with Amira, and she says some incredibly dumb and pay- patronizing and very insensitive things. And there are scenes wh- which are forced slapstick. Like, for instance, there's one scene where Shelley is at the bachelorette party with mostly other black women, and they're playing Hangman, which isn't the best game to play with other black people for a number of reasons, but she's trying to think of a word, and it's a seven-letter word that ends in S, and she says, and she probably should have thought of this before it came out of her mouth, oh, is it an N-word? And, of course, that creates crickets in the scene, but... Yeah, of course, that she said that just to stammer a little while later and backtrack, but by that time, it's a little too late. And that's not even the most cringiest scene with uh, Julia louis Dreyfus's character. And it's one of those things we saw probably parodied in Get Out, where you have white people in that film who say really jaw-droppingly stupid things to black people as a textbook example of what not... What white people should not say to black people, but I feel like in this film it was just played for laughs, but instead the entire film it just made me cringe. But one of the most disappointing things about you people, especially with Kenya Barris as the co writer and the director of the film, is it is amazing how underdeveloped. Most of the characters are, especially some of the black characters in this film. For example, a lot of the back and forth is given to Esra and Akbar, but Neil Long, who plays Amira's mother, is given almost nothing to do. And Arnold, David Duchovny's character, is there to play somewhat semi-cringeworthy things, but his character also isn't particularly well-developed. And there is a weak-running gag where he keeps talking about Exhibit, the rapper, and how he admires the guy, as if Amira actually knows Exhibit personally. So, in essence, You People is a very uncomfortable film to watch. It's rarely funny. There were a couple of times where I had a few chuckles, but overall, it's a film that does not work. It tries to commit itself to being a romantic comedy and then a a satire of social commentary, but by trying to appease to both genres, it really doesn't accomplish very much of anything. It's a very poorly written film. The characters, for the most part, are grossly underdeveloped, And particularly where you have Jonah Hill's character, who's a broker, who's not really into it, who wants to get into podcasting full time. He also doesn't really have a visible means of income to, A, get the kind of house that he and Amira decide to live in together, and B, also hold a wedding a little while later, supposedly. So you people has a lot of things wrong with it, and it gets my rating of a flunk out. This is a profound disappointment given that Kenya Barris is behind the camera. He doesn't make a cameo in front of the camera, kind of like Alfred Hitchcock does in this film. But rest assured, it doesn't help. It's so it's full of so many cliched characters, some archetypes, a lot of jaw-droppingly offensive stereotypes from both black and white characters. And it's just really a very poor film. And it is not worth viewing more than once. Even seeing it once was just bad enough. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of February 6th through February 10th, 2023. And the first movie... That is subject to being released in theaters on February 6th, which is a Monday, and is likely to be shown by Fathom Events, is a brand new documentary that is called Facing the Laughter, Minnie Pearl. And chances are, you probably know Minnie Pearl if you've ever watched the syndicated variety show Hee Haw. That is the show where Minnie Pearl, whose real name was Sarah Cannon, got her claim to fame. And... Sarah Cannon was a serious, educated woman who had once dreamed of becoming a Shakespearean actress, which is kind of mind-boggling when you learn about Minnie Pearl, but she found fame playing a simple country girl who often made herself the butt of her jokes, instantly identifiable even in silhouette by her straw hat with a price tag dangling from its brim, Minnie Pearl became an icon of country music, radio, stage, and TV. And when she greeted audiences, they enthusiastically echoed her signature, I'm going to try to do this, howdy, in a happy roar. While Sarah and Minnie were two sides of a coin, they shared a legacy of compassion, empowerment, and humor. Now, I did not watch very many episodes of Hee Haw, but I do actually remember one episode of Comic Relief, which was in the late 80s, throughout the 90s, and I think the last episode they aired was 2006, that was a special that aired on HBO annually, which was a showcase of the hottest stand-up comedians, or at least most of them, getting together to raise money for homeless people. It was hosted by Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, and Whoopi Goldberg, and many comic acts, not necessarily stand-up comedians, were on that program. And it was started by Bob Zmuda, who is best friends with Andy Kaufman. And he started it in 1986, a year after uh, Andy Kaufman's death, primarily, I think at first to raise money for cancer treatments, but then eventually it delved into helping people who were less fortunate. And I do remember Minnie Pearl on one of the comic releases. I think it was one of the first ones in 86 or 87. And she did that whole, you know, howdy. So I am going to see Facing the Laughter Minnie Pearl on February 6th. I know there's a theater near me that is playing it. And if you look, particularly if you uh, attend a theater that plays special screenings from Fathom um, Fathom events, you will probably find this at your local theater too. It, it is presumed to be playing for one night only, but it's likely that this documentary will eventually be released on streaming, but I will go to the theater. I will see it. And I will let you know what I think on next week's show on to February 10th, which is this coming Friday, 2023. There are several movies that are going to be coming out in theaters. The biggest one is going to be Magic Mike's Last Dance. Now, the Magic Mike movies are one of those movies that I didn't think I would like, and I, have, I haven't I have seen the original Magic Mike. I still went to the movies frequently when Magic Mike came out, but I do distinctly remember going to another film when Magic Mike... The original one came out, I think it was around 2012, and I saw a very long line of women of all ages going to see that movie, and I knew exactly why those women were going to see that film. So in my mind, I was thinking, have fun, ladies, but I had no interest in seeing it. But I did eventually see Magic Mike XXL, which was the film that came out a few years later, and while I would never go to see a Chippendale show because I'm straight, I actually did like the movie. I thought that the male dancers in the film had amazing chemistry together and the film actually told a really good story. And Channing Tatum was actually very likable. I mean, at first when he started being, uh, coming out in theaters and getting starring roles, I kind of thought to myself, oh, he's just, he's just popular in movies for his looks. He's just, you know a male model and that's about it. But Magic Mike XXL and 21 and 22 Jump Street made me change my mind about Channing Tatum. He's really cool and he is a very good screen presence and not just for his looks. But I remember thinking the same things at first about Zac Efron, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt and several other people. They grew on me. And there have been some other pretty boys like Ryan Reynolds who haven't quite... Grown on me, but Ryan Reynolds is actually coming around a little bit in my book. He's just not there yet. But anyway, Magic Mike's Last Dance, it is of course the third movie in the Magic Mike series. It is directed by Steven Soderbergh, and in this movie, Magic Mike takes to the stage again, following a business deal that went bust, leaving him broke and taking bartender gigs in Florida. Mike heads to London with a wealthy socialite who lures him with an offer he can't refuse. So, in this movie, the wealthy socialite is named Maxandra Mendoza, which is an amazing character name, and she's played by Salma Hayek. And interestingly enough, on the posters of this film, Salma Hayek is credited as Salma Hayek Pinal, and Pinol is, of course, her uh, married name, but why she goes by her married name and not her maiden name, I don't exactly know, but I'm interested to see... The two of them, Channing Tatum and Salma Hayek together, my guess is despite their age difference, they're going to have amazing chemistry together. Salma Hayek is still a knockout at her age, and she probably will be at least for the next 10 years. So my guess is this is probably, this may be her last film where she's treated as a sex symbol, or at least I'm presuming, but... Magic Mike's Last Dance is a film that I probably will see in theaters, and I will let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on February 10th is a movie that's called Seriously Red. And this is a film that, is, that looks to be uh, about, uh, sort of indirectly about Dolly Parton. And apparently this film was supposed to open on November 24th but it's opening on February 10th now. So it's about a realtor who pursues a new career as a Dolly Parton impersonator. Now, my guess is that this film is going to be huge. I'm going to sound a little like Donald Trump here. Excuse me. It's going to be huge, huge here in Nashville. So, According to IMDb, this realtor who's being a Dolly Parton impersonator is named Red and she's played by Crew Boylan, who I got to be honest, I'm not entirely familiar with as an actress, but the movie co-stars Daniel Weber, Rose Byrne, Celeste Barber, and Bobby Cannavale amongst other people. And I'm actually kind of amazed that... Rose Byrne isn't the one playing the lead in this, because I think that would attract a lot of people. But then again, this movie made its premiere at the South by Southwest Film Festival, the Maine International Film Festival, and several other film festivals of that caliber. It's directed by Gracie Otto, based on a script written by Crew Boylan herself. So I'm interested to see how this film is. I'm probably going to buy my tickets early because I would imagine that Nashvilleians are going to pack the theater when they see this film. And I actually don't know if it debuted at last year's Nashville International Film Festival because I didn't attend that film festival, regretfully. I just didn't have time to do it. But Seriously Red is a movie that I will seek out since it is likely to play around here because after all, here Dolly Parton is a goddess And when she dies, which hopefully won't be soon, but when she dies, I think the city of Nashville will be in mourning. Rest assured, the rest of the country will also be in mourning, but the point is here, Dolly Parton is a living legend. So Seriously Red is probably going to be huge, and I will see this movie and review it for you on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters nationwide on February 10th is a movie that's called... Huey Sarah, the Bone Woman. I have never heard of this Bone Woman before. A review from Variety calls this movie spine-chillingly terrifying. So, even though I try not to read reviews before seeing films, that already sets a precedent. But it's a movie about a woman named Valeria, who has long dreamed about becoming a mother. After learning that she's pregnant, she expects to feel happy, yet something's off. Which... In and of itself, in terms of its premise, does not sound like a horror film. It sounds like pretty much every typical pregnancy or first-time pregnancy for a woman. And I hope that doesn't sound misogynistic because I don't mean it to sound it that way. But the movie stars Alfonso Dorsal, Maya Bartea, Natalie Solian, and Sonia Co. And it's a movie that looks like that it is international but I would love uh, to see if this movie is in theaters because it does look very intriguing. I'm not gonna guarantee that this movie is one I'm going to be seeing in theaters, but I will try to see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.